This is Exchanges at Goldman Sachs, where we discuss developments currently shaping markets, industries, and the global economy. I'm Jake Seward, Global Head of Corporate Communications here at the firm. For today's episode, we're going to share a recent conversation from Goldman Sachs Research 2020 Global Macro Conference in Hong Kong. The panel was entitled Global Market Shocks for the 1987 Crash to Brexit Lessons for Today. Steve Strongen and Jan Hatzius of Goldman Sachs Research sat down for discussion all about connections, why economic cycles and market cycles are increasingly independent, why economic volatilities decline while market volatility has largely remained the same, and how shocks like political surprises and climate change stand to radiate through each space. Now, over to that conversation. Hope you enjoy it. It's now uh, my great pleasure to uh, introduce Steve Strongen, um, the head of global investment research uh, and uh, senior member of the firm's management committee. Uh, Steve has um, been at Goldman Sachs for 25 years and uh, has run uh, investment research since 2007, so uh, really led us through, through the crisis uh, and, um, and, and, and in the turbulent aftermath. Uh, and so uh, really looking forward to, to Steve's insights about uh, market shocks, economic cycles. Uh, I'm going to ask him some questions, um, and uh, at the end we'll have some time for questions from the audience. Please do submit them uh, through, the, uh, through the app. Uh, but let me start with um, something that I've heard you say many times, namely the distinction between market cycles and economic cycles. Um, what, what's your perspective on the, how those differ and how they relate to one another? Sure. I mean, it's listening to the last session, we spend a lot of time talking about cycles. And almost inevitably, as soon as someone is asked about a cycle, they deny it's a cycle. Um, we use the term cycle to talk about two different things, things that happen a lot and the way things connect to each other. Um, and so, you know, when, when I was a young economist, um, and they were still using stone tablets, um, they, we had, there was a very clear notion of sort of a industrial cycle, inventories, consumer durables, and that drove the economic and the market cycles. Um, that isn't the way the world works anymore. Um, and to a certain extent, typically when we see a sort of global cycle today, Right? It tends to have the form that we saw in 08 of more of a general financial problem than an industrial or economic one. Right? So when I started, we had industrial cycles. And then we had oil cycles. Um, and then we had a couple of banking cycles. And then we had the financial crisis. When you look at the patterns we see today, I think what you see is, is sort of two things very apparent in the data that the amount of connectivity between different parts of the global economy and different parts of the markets are actually considerably lower than they used to be, not higher. You know, we often talk, largely because we're now organized as global investment firms, as though the world has become more interconnected. And in a human sense, that's probably true. In a market sense, um, you know, there used to be a line that when the U.S. Caught a, you know, caught, you know, caught a sneeze, the rest of the world caught the flu. The U.S. has gone up and down, the rest of the world has done fine. Japan has gone up and down, the rest of the world has done fine. Europe, I've actually lost count of the crises in the last decade, uh, but the rest of the world did fine. Um, and so one of the things we've seen is a tremendous increase in the resiliency in the global economy of one part of it to another. So much more diversified. And then when you look at markets, 
partially because of the way people invest today, in partially because of the way the regulators changed all of the rules after the financial crisis, we've seen a similar kind of independence of market action. That not only today do we see the markets act independently of the economic cycle, but we see individual markets that we used to think of as highly connected operating quite independently. You know, we had a day last year where the S&P went down by 10% in a day because of a problem in an ETF. And high yield traded up. Concentrated hedge fund positions traded up. Okay, And the S&P was off a full correction. Okay? That's something that would have been unthinkable 10 or 15 years ago. Right? We would have expected risk off to take all of those markets together. And so today, I think, when we talk about market cycles, we're talking about specific issues in specific markets related to specific problems. And when we talk about economic cycles, we're talking about specific economies. Um, and, 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 and frankly, when you talk about economic cycles today, we're usually explaining why there isn't one. Right? You know, uh, they did a survey at one of the earlier sessions about are you expecting the recession next year, the year after, or sometime later? It's generally a year out. That's right. But, but this time, two out was the top answer, right? And sometime later, beat one year out, right? And, and, and I think that reflects the sense of risk people have. Um, I think it also reflects the fact that when you look at imbalances and leverage and mispriced markets today, um, nothing looks that out of sync in the private markets. You know, I, th I think the two easiest things to point at is that private equity looks really large, but it's very hard to think about how a private equity problem would radiate to the rest of the markets or into the economy. Okay, and sovereign debt, right? You know, I, I think if you look at a market that looks mispriced, the quickest, simplest answer is the sort of long-term sovereign debt market. Again, it's very hard to think about how that is forcibly correct corrects or how it plays out into other things. Um, and it's hard to imagine any of the current central banks actively beginning to work against their own home debt market. And so I think as we look at the market today, right, instead of thinking in terms of big cycles, it really becomes important to think of little specific problems in the market and think of that as the investment. But if you take that a little bit further, um, you know, Sovereign debt, uh, you know, trading at very high valuations, long-term rates extremely low, uh, central banks unwilling to, uh, to tighten uh, and, and hurt their, their own home market. I mean, does that mean you're, you're worried that we might be uh, at risk of going back to a higher inflation environment where we, we, we actually are concerned that uh, inflation is not too low but too high at some point? You know, I, I, I think the quick answer to that question is if you were investing on fundamentals today, you know, trillion dollar deficits in the United States, uh, increases in wages, uh, you'd be short bonds, flat equities, and unemployed, right? Because um, that hasn't worked. And, and there's really nothing that suggests it's going to work. Um, if you put it in the historical context, um, and, and, th and since this actually predates me, I'm pretty sure it's going to predate the audience. Uh, right, the last time we had an environment like this was the early 60s. Very low structural inflation rates, very well-anchored inflation, fiscal policies that are probably too loose, but not radically too loose. Um, and it began an inflationary trend. 
Okay, but the short bond trade was for the late 70s. Right, so you know, in the time frame of the last cycle, right, 62 to 79 was the last inflationary cycle. On that timeline, we're about 1966. And everybody wants to put on 1978's trades. Right, you know, it, it kind of reminds me when I was a young economist, all the people who wanted to be short JGBs, all of whom are in either other industries, unemployed, or found other work to do. Right, inflation really moves slowly. And so it, it's easy to conclude in this market that long-term bonds seem rich. It's easy to conclude that inflation will come back someday. Right? The problem with that statement is someday. Right? Tomorrow doesn't look very likely. The day after tomorrow doesn't look very likely. And the year after tomorrow actually only looks slightly likely. Uh, and then if you think about the political environment, and this may be the most important aspect if you think about broadly, you know, your own work has shown that where you really see the inflationary pressures is in wages. In the current political environment, the notion that central banks are going to act aggressively to stop a wage-based inflation, I think has to be viewed as, as about as unlikely as any other political action one can imagine. From income inequality to the political dislocations of Brexit, Europe, Trump, Right, the pressures in various countries, it's very hard to see central banks acting to hurt wages. So what, what I hear you saying is that you'd be long break-even inflation uh, in, the, in the bond market. Uh, that, um, that, that seems like uh, the, the sort of most direct translation of the, of the combination of gradually increasing inflation pressure on central banks that are going to be very slow in addressing them. Uh, on a PA basis, absolutely. Um, on a professional basis, I, I think it's very hard not to want to be long carry in this environment because it's hard to see what's going to break the carry trades. Right. Uh, I have one follow-up question on the kind of relationship between markets and, and economies. If we look at volatility of the, of the economy, it's clearly gone down, as you, as you said. Uh, you know, the, the standard deviation of uh, real GDP growth has fallen sharply even though we went through the um, uh, global financial crisis uh, a little over a decade ago. But at the same time, volatility of financial markets doesn't seem to have changed very much. Um, so what does that tell you about, uh, I mean, what's your interpretation of that? You know, it would seem to me that you'd expect a, a relationship where market volatility ultimately tracks economic volatility to some degree, but we don't seem to be seeing that. No, in fact, I, I think when all is said and done, it's actually going to go farther the other way. Uh, when you look at what has happened in the real economy, um, there's a lot of structural change in the real economy in the last 20 years. Uh, services is a higher percentage. When you look inside of durable goods, more of the value-added inside of durable goods is software and service-related entities. If you look at employment, um, even in the industrial sector of the economy, manufacturing labor is a small percentage of industrial labor. So that all of the things we've historically associated with cyclicality in the economy are smaller. Right. Right? And then further than that, even when you look at areas that still are very cyclical, autos or construction or investment, we've seen the duration decline and we've seen those value-added change. So I think there's simply a reduction in the cyclicality of basic level. I think you've also seen, 
partially because of that, partially because of changes in the structure of goods, a reduction in interest rate sensitivity. So that if you think about the number of things people buy that are sensitive to the interest rate, well, home housing still is, except we see more rental. Auto still is, except we see more leasing. Um, investment still is, except the duration of investment has become shorter. So that the fundamental interest rate sensitivity of the economy is, is probably significantly reduced. I think the empirical work would suggest it's about 0.7 what it used to be. Mm -hmm. I think when we do those estimates again in five years, it's going to be less than half. Right. Okay. And what that suggests is that if you're going to get the same, if, you're going to, if you need to slow the economy, you're going to need to raise rates more. So that I think when we get to the point where economic volatility begins to come back, we're going to see market volatility have to rise, actually considerably from where it is now. Um, so I actually think that when all is said and done, we're going to have decided that economic volatility has fallen by 20 or 30%, and market volatility has gone up by 20 or 30% as the balancing point. Um, and that's going to represent some real interesting possibilities in the marketplace. I, I, don't, I want to be very careful about that forecast, though, because in order for that to become real, you need the stresses in the economy to have grown to the point where the markets are again having to perform a balancing function. And that's just not true today, right? You know, that when you look at you know, wage pressures or credit pressures, it's very clear the central banks are not the balance point in that equation today, nor are they interested in becoming the balance point in that equation today. So I think in that sense, we're still a ways away from that increase in vol, but it's coming someday. Yeah, so uh, especially as far as interest rates are concerned, because interest rates are the, the primary balancing, uh, balancing mechanism. Um, and, uh, and that's uh, uh, a, a reason maybe later in the cycle to see more of, uh, of, the, of the volatility. That's right. But we, we have the two largest central banks in the world talking about the fact they need to take account of income inequality in the setting of monetary policy. Right? And then you think about wage growth. It's going to take a lot before these central banks become activist, anti-inflation central banks again. But even without aggressive monetary uh, policy tightening, and so far we've only seen you know, very uh, uh, kind of gradual cycles, I mean, we've seen very significant bouts of market volatility uh, that you know, are not that different from what we've seen in an economically much more volatile environment in the, in the past. That's right. Although I, I think the source of that isn't about the discussion we've been having. I think the source of that has to do with reduced liquidity. Um, I think we have a situation where very small market behaviors can generate fairly large price volatility. Um, you know, I'll, I'll go back to that, to that ETF episode, right? We basically had to unwind two VIX ETFs and got a 10% move in the S&P. Now, it only lasted 24 hours, but that's a lot of volatility. Uh, we have flash crashes on a fairly regular basis. Uh, if those flash crashes hit an overnight limit, it goes, goes beyond that. Um, you know, earlier they were talking about, um, you know, sort of crowded trades and risk parity came up, right? The classic example. Um, and, and I think it goes to the fact that we have a lot of people 
who've invested in fairly low liquidity trades in very patient methods. And that works right up until it doesn't. Right? And, and I think what with the vol market volatility we have seen is when you hit those moments when finally the weak hand has to give up and there's no buyer. I don't think those have been dealing with the economic volatility. I think they've been clearing the, the technical. So it's, it's investor behavior that uh, that is that is behind this. Um, yes. The changes in liquidity policy. Where would you put policy in the, in that? Uh, uh, you know, I know you you spend a lot of time thinking about. Uh, Regulation and uh, and liquidity and, and issues like that. Yeah, it's sort of interesting when when you talk about policy and liquidity, you have to go to regulation, not to policy, right? It's it's not central bank policy that's driving this. It is the fact that post crisis, most central banks became skeptical of balance sheet um, in terms of arbitrage. You know, I, I go to occasional academic conferences. And if you go to an academic conference nowadays, there's going to be at least two or three papers on the fact that basic arbitrage equations no longer work. Right? You know, I was at one um, in Europe last year where they were discussing the fact that covered interest rate parity no longer holds. Okay, right. This is the most basic, cheapest, simplest arbitrage that you teach to first-year finance students, and it no longer works. And it no longer works because balance sheet has become too expensive to put on the trade. Um, and so the markets at the micro level are much less healthy than they used to be. Um, you know, uh, I was joking with, with uh, some of the younger group about the fact that no one, you know, no one knows what an on-the-run, off-the-run trade is. And just to prove the point, we had to explain to a few people what an on-the-run, off-the-run trade was. Um, right when when I started, right, you know, long-term capital, you know, was like the largest hedge fund in the world, and the only trade they did was on the run, off the run trades. Nowadays, you have to explain to new people what it is. Um, so let's switch gears to um, a uh, uh, an issue that you basically spent your first decade uh, at Goldman Sachs on, uh, namely commodities. Uh, you were hired as the head of commodities research. In, uh, in 1994, and um, the, the oil market, at least, is one where we actually have seen a reduction in, uh, in volatility. Yes. And uh, I'm curious about your perspectives on the outlook for, for oil prices, uh, you know, both in terms of the level and in terms of the, the, the variation around the fundamental level. Uh, in light of all the structural changes that we've seen in the in the in the oil market over the last uh, 10, 15 years, so so let's frame that for a moment. Um, in in the middle of the issues between the U.S. and Iran, the bond market moved more than the oil market. Okay, um, something that still actually confuses me a little bit. Um, yeah, oil market moves a lot less. It moves for a couple of reasons. Less. Uh, the first one is that both demand and supply have become more elastic. Um, for a variety of reasons having to do with climate change, technology, uh, a lot of investment has gone in to substitute demand for classic petroleum. Right? If you look at the electrical generation industry, there's a lot of non-fossil fuel-based generation today that wasn't there 20 years ago. Um, and the ability to switch between them is higher. Uh, transportation doesn't look that different. 
Um, on the other hand, the amount of transportation demand in the economy relative to GDP has declined. And then on the supply side, supply side of fossil fuels is far more elastic than it used to be. Um, you know, when, when I started, from when you started to develop a field to when you could deliver new fossil fuels was about a seven-year process in size. Today, that's about a six-month process with a payback period that's less than a year and a half. And so when you see price spikes today, it, it, the, the system can actually adapt and produce new oil well before you would run out of inventories. And similarly, there's more inventory storage, and, it's, and you see, because of the decline rates of that same shale, you see oil supply disappear faster than you used to. So that today, the oil market trades a lot more like an industrial market and a lot less like an old natural resources market. So the ball's just gone. Ball's gone and price levels. What, what would be your, your expectation on kind of the medium, medium term? So, so the, the industrial process of creating oil today would suggest you're probably going to stay between 30 and 80 for the foreseeable future. Occasional movement out of that, and most of the time in the middle part of that range. Right. Um, now, you already mentioned... Uh, Uh, climate change and environmental issues, um, obviously very closely related to oil, uh, very difficult to, to talk about commodities these days without uh, also talking about uh, climate change. And uh, the environment is a, is a longstanding interest of, of yours, both professionally and uh, also from a philanthropic perspective. Uh, you've also uh, spent a significant amount of time recently uh, thinking about climate change uh, specifically Uh, and various mitigation strategies. Uh, what are the main lessons that you've learned from uh, looking at this in, in more detail over, uh, over the past year? So I, I think there's, there, there's three areas I think people have to pay attention to that aren't necessarily getting enough attention. First, um, and, and, and this is easy to say this week, uh, I think the actual dislocations from climate change are not getting as much attention from investors as they need to. Um, you know, Jeff Curry and I wrote a piece like 17, 18 years ago about why volatility was more important than the average temperature. Um, that extremes of cold, extremes of heat, extremes of drought uh, will end up having more impact on the commodities markets. You know, it's hard not to look at the headlines from Australia today and understand that's not an abstract notion. Right, that the kinds of issues we are seeing in the western parts of the United States, what we are seeing in Australia, um, are real. And they're going to have real implications for the economy. Um, now, I, I, people sometimes get upset about this. Uh, those are not necessarily negative. You know, one, of, one of the things that you learn when you're a commodities analyst um, is that bad events raise GDP. Right, you know, when when you you know when you burn out a large chunk of a country, that doesn't go in the GDP. Illustrating that GDP is not a great measure of welfare. Not a great measure of welfare, right? So when it burns down, there's no impact. When you rebuild it, it's positive GDP, right? So one of the things we're going to see, I think, in, in countries locally and more broadly, is that the dislocations and adjustments to climate change are going to force GDP and investments. Um, I think the other aspect of that is people haven't paid a lot of attention to the where that's going to happen. Um, you know, when you think about drought and fire, you get the Western United States, you get Australia, 
when you think about population displacement, um, you begin to think about Southeast Asia, uh, you begin to think about uh, Bangladesh, uh, you begin to think about certain sections of Africa, um, and weirdly enough, uh, Siberia. Uh, aren't a lot of people in Siberia, but it's kind of turning into a giant puddle. Because um, people used to build on permafrost. It turns out the concept of permafrost is now somewhat antiquated. Right. Um, Are we seeing that already? Yes. Or is this, a, this is a reality, not just a... That is a reality. You, you are today having to re relocate Alaskan villages because they are falling into the ocean. You are having to relocate communities in Siberia because they are melting. Uh, you are seeing areas like this in Greenland. Um, and, and so I think that's not as immediate to people. Um, the, the second thing, I think, is that people haven't come to grips yet with that the sort of make nice, good-sounding green strategies don't get you where we need to get, right? A lot of the sort of ESG sustainable investing, which has become a big theme, that if you did everything on the to-do list would represent less than half of the solution. Um, which means, in the end, that's not going to be the dominant paradigm of how we address this. Um, at some point in the process, we're probably going to get to a carbon price. And this is com coming from you as somebody who's been active in the environmental movement for a that's long right. time. But, but you, you can read the IPCC reports. They've been circling this statement forever. Right? You know, if you read it, it's like, if everyone in the whole world listens to us, and they do everything we say, we think we can get to zero. Okay? And, and that would be great. Now let's put an investor's touch of cynicism on that. Right? What percentage of the people are really going to listen? How fast are they going to act against their own self-interest? Okay? Um, and how conservative are those forecasts? When you make those adjustments, you get to where the IPCC report got this last time, which is that sequestration and carbon removal and some period of negative emissions is probably going to be necessary. If you throw in the fact that climate change has been operating faster than those forecasts, those numbers climb. Um, and if, if you put in full cynicism, if we think about climate change the way we invest, Okay, and we start looking at the countries that probably won't adjust to climate change. We think about the fact that most of the emerging markets will probably decide they're going to put in air conditioners and refrigerations and grow before they take climate change that seriously. Uh, if we take into account that you know, certain areas disproportionately suffer, and so the ones that don't probably aren't going to make the same adjustments, you begin to see why it is that in the end we're going to need a different kind of global response that's going to require coordinated actions, it's going to require a carbon price, and it's going to require real investment in new technologies and new solutions. And I think the thing we're beginning to look at most carefully on the climate side is sort of a two-part question. Right? Let's suppose the kumbaya solution to climate change fails and we do get a carbon price, what is that investing environment going to look like? Okay, and when you look at that one, what you realize is you're gonna end up with some global-ish taxes, maybe on trade, maybe on fossil fuels, maybe on income, that is consistent with the issues on um, income inequality. And you're gonna start financing conservation and sequestration 
out of that global fund, and we're gonna end up with a fairly large technical investment in climate solutions. Um, but you're not gonna get a large technical investment in climate solutions um, until somebody's actually paying you to do it. To me, the scariest part of the current response to climate is that we have focused on the emitters to give us the solution. Right? Now, I don't want to be mean or cynical or nasty, but facing a global problem, if I was going to pick two industries to address it, it wouldn't be the utilities and the car companies. Right? I'd kind of want tech companies and drug companies and biologic companies who specialize in innovation to be the ones focused on this, not utilities. Um, and so I think that's a change that's going to happen. Um, and it's going to be a really critical change in the way we think about climate. You know, today, it is a regulatory problem. It is an emissions problem. I think it's going to become a technology problem and a price and a cl more classical investment of how do we get the carbon dioxide out and how do we fix the problems with fires and how do we fix the problems with drought. Um, and that's a much more classic investing problem. So that sounds more like a subsidy for clean, uh, clean energy or car carbon solutions rather than a tax on, uh, on emissions. I mean, obviously, you could have, you could have both, but you, you, see, you put the emphasis a lot more on the, on the solutions than on the... Than on the uh, no, I, I, de I definitely do. Um, you know, w when, when you look at doing this by conservation, mm. w what you realize is that the politics of that are going to be really hard. You know... It, 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 even if you look at the countries where there's true commitment to climate, at least the words are there, right? France can't raise the gasoline tax. Germany can't lower their speed limit. Um, every time they put a, try to put a new wind farm in Germany, you get local protests. Um, you know, and, and now, you know, in, in Scandinavia, there's still a certain amount of, of, of acceptance of this. But you know, what, you know, if there's anywhere in the world you probably don't need to address climate change, it's Scandinavia, right? It's one of the great ironies that the people most willing to like go there are the people who most least need to worry about it, right? Um, it, you know, what we really need to do, you know, it's one of my colleagues has been looking at sort of on the ground climate adjustment. So in the United States, the group of people who most need to change their behavior are sort of rural. Um, individuals in hot climates. Okay, what does that mean, right? As an economic abstraction, that sounds great. That basically means that somebody living in a trailer in Texas needs to give up their pickup, their air conditioning, and their barbecue. Now, I don't know how many of you have ever spent time in Texas, but I gotta tell you, the odds of people giving up air conditioning, barbecue, and pickup trucks in Texas, I would not want to bet the planet on. Right? And so I think when you look at that reality, the notion that instead we're going to come up with... So New York Times had an article last week, a couple days ago, actually. Whenever you come to Asia and you're an American, you start getting your days mixed up. Um, was on living bricks. Right? And this basically was a mixture of Knox gelatin, bacteria, and heat. And it basically sucked in carbon and made a brick. Those are the kinds of solutions we're going to end up needing to solve this problem. Right? And they're going to be really creative, 
You know, uh, you and I were talking about this earlier. If you look at the last time the world was facing a crisis like this in form, it was the beginning of the last century. Okay? Um, and the primary concern was the environmental impact of animal-based transportation. Okay? And there were forecasts in the New York Times about the fact that on a 10-year forward basis, the city streets of New York City would probably be a couple feet deep in horseshit. Okay? Um, and the math was perfectly reasonable. Okay? It turned out the solution was not a different horse. Right? The solution turned out to be the Model T. Okay, and that's the kind of energy and thought we're going to need to generate. Uh, and that's part of the reason why I think the carbon price is the essential element. It's not because, you know, the standard University of Chicago prices are the answer, externalities, we need the perfect price. It's how do we free up the whole world, all of the creative thinkers, to participate to solve this problem in a way where we're not constraining the solution to our own preconceptions. But you think that uh, carbon removal and storage is, uh, is likely to be an important part of the answer. There's, there's also other solutions. Um, you know, solar geoengineering is one that, uh, that gets, a, gets a lot of attention. Um, but you, you focused, uh, I think, Uh, especially on the carbon removal and, uh, and storage aspect I, of this. I, I have, but, but I want to be careful in that statement. I focus on carbon removal because it's the easier thing to explain. Mm -hmm. right? But a big part of the point is I don't want to prejudge a solution. Right? You know, I, I have two prejudices in this process that I'll admit are prejudices. Okay? The notion that utilities and car companies are going to figure this out, I find strains my credibility. Okay? Um, And I think the answer that we're going to do this through suffering is going to be politically impossible. And so when I think about solutions, I think about things that are actually going to be like the change from horses to, model T, to the Model T car, things that actually both solve the problem and make us better off. Right? And that's the reason. Now, you know, that also can be new forms of energy that are truly clean. It can be uh, compound systems of where we get, do removal at cheap rates. Um, I have a, a, a hunch, and I don't want to justify, I don't want to give it any higher comment than a hunch, that given this is primarily a biologically driven problem, right? fossil fuels are a biological process, that it would not surprise me if the solution turns out to be biologic in nature too. One of the reasons I brought up the living brick. Okay. Um, But we don't know. You know, I, I, we were talking about, so early part of my career, you mentioned commodities. I spent an enormous amount of time explaining to people that peak oil was a description of a technology in decline that would eventually be displaced by a new technology that wouldn't be in decline. And that I found peak oil to be just a dumb idea. Um, and my colleagues, uh, Michaela sitting over there, who was one of them, we spent a great deal of time discussing what the next technology would be. And we did a great job. And I, I, I don't want to put, a, I do find a point on that. I think that team did an incredible job of describing the process by which we would eventually discover the new technology. As it turned out, the new technology that solved the problem was an old technology uh, called uh, fracking. And it also turned out it wasn't on our list of potential technologies. Right? Uh, so we got the process right. We didn't get the answer right. 
And, and that, to me, is really critical when you talk about climate change here, is the odds that we know the form of the answer is really low. I think the odds there is an answer is a lot higher. And I think the odds of finding that answer if there's a price to invest against is way higher. Um, let's move to, to another topic, namely disruption. You've written a number of papers about uh, disruption uh, in business and the, and the economy and its, its increasing impact. Um, can you explain why the amount of disruption that we're seeing Uh, seems to have increased. Uh, I think that's something that you know many investors would 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 agree on. But when we look at the productivity numbers, productivity growth is significantly slower than it was in periods when disruption seemed to be much less of a feature of our uh, our, our everyday lives and in business and markets. Yeah, no, I, I had a fascinating experience with this. I, I agreed to be on a panel in my alma mater at the University of Chicago, and I was two professors and me. And the two professors were both experts in productivity. And they got up and they started explaining why innovation had declined and why the world had slowed down in terms of new products. And I'm sitting at the end of the panel going, okay, um, I think virtually every person in business thinks this was working the other way. Um, right? uh, you know, Facebook came from nowhere, uh, streaming, the cable declined. I think it has to do with the nature of modern technology. You know, the, the session, not the session just before this one, but two back, I think is almost entirely the answer to this question. Um, modern technology is about custom answers to individuals, not about efficiency in the old economic sense. Um, you know, one of the papers that you're referring to is something called Survivor's Guide, and one of the sections of it is a discussion of the difference between the subscription model in TV and the advertising model. So if you're using TV to advertise, the old networks, you want the least common denominator program. You want the program that everybody watches so that you can stick in the ad and show it to the most people. And so in those days, you got TV shows like Friends. Okay? Today, um, you're trying to get the next subscriber. Right? So now you want the TV show that somebody wants to watch, but it, it's somebody who doesn't watch the shows you've already sold them. Right? And that's what gets you niche programming. Right? So instead of trying to do Friends, you're doing Russian Dolls. Right, and, and we've done analysis sort of of the marginal market of these new TV shows. And if you look at Netflix or the other streamers, they're now trying to find the next 12 people who want the next weird show. Right, because if they show the people they already have subscribing one more show, that's zero profit. But if they can find a show that gets them 10 more viewers, now they have marginal viewership. Now, from a productivity standpoint, The way we do economic statistics, that's a complete disaster. Right? We're now putting resources into the smallest audience possible instead of the largest audience possible. Right? And that just looks bad in the stats. On the other hand, from an economic welfare standpoint, it's great. I, I, you know, I can partially answer the question in an audience sort of think, thought uh, experiment. According to the economic statistics, which drive the whole income inequality debate, um, the average person is supposed to be willing to trade the current consumption bundle with your cell phones, your streaming, and your medical care flat for the phone you had 10 years ago and the not phone you had 30 years ago. Right? I don't think you can get anybody to take those trades. 
And, and, and that unwillingness to go back to 1975's consumption bundle is basically a demonstration we're not doing the statistics right. And I think the heart- You think it's a measurement uh, uh, issue in, in the end? It, it's a measurement issue, but it's a deeper measurement issue than we're not doing the statistics right. It's that the statistics are designed to measure macro efficiency. Mm -hmm. they're, not measure, they're not designed to measure individual fit. Right? And so consumer surplus is not part of GDP. Right. So to the extent we've made everybody happier by being able to watch TV programs they really like, that doesn't go into GDP. So we may need to think about what we measure, but it's not the statistics are wrong, it's that we've actually graduated to a whole new kind of economic existence. Right. Um, before I go to uh, audience questions, one, one last question from me, uh, which is that you know, one aspect of the, of the current environment that's particularly noticeable is just the increased role of politics um, relative to kind of economic vol volatility. Uh, and we see that you know, domestically in the U.S. Uh, with um, all of the drama surrounding the, the Trump administration or on the geopolitical stage, if you look at the Middle East, Uh, or the Korean Peninsula. Uh, is it just my impression, or is politics uh, just a greater source of volatility nowadays than it was when you, when you started your career? Uh, and if it is, are there any takeaways that you could share um, how we as investors or analysts uh, should, should deal with that? I mean, is it, is, it, is it profitable to just spend a lot more time on political analysis and write a lot more about politics for market economists or, or, or strategists? Um, or how, 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 do you, um, how would you deal with that? So I think one of the problems for us is that political cycles run different time frames than economic cycles. Um, so you ask the question, is it more political now than when I started? And the answer is it is far more political now than when I started. On the other hand, if I go back to when I was in middle school, that was actually worse from a political standpoint. You know, it, it, it's not, there's not a lot of people who remember it, but in 1968, in the United States, we both assassinated a major civil rights leader and a major political candidate. Um, the National Guard shot college students in Ohio, and the political convention in Chicago turned into a bloody riot. There were street riots in the streets of, of, of Tokyo. You know, we're sitting in Hong Kong. The, 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 the issues we have seen in Hong Kong um, in the last 12 months are awful. They are similar to what you saw in Tokyo in the 1960s. Um, and so the, the kinds of political upheaval we've seen today does have historical precedence. They are not recent ones. Um, and unfortunately, there is still room for this to get worse before it gets better. Um, now, from, from an investing standpoint, um, I have a very different view of this. Uh, I think it is virtually impossible to make money on politics. I, I think political risk is why you learn how to do fancy risk management. Because um, I don't think it's possible to have insight into many of these processes. Um, You know, uh, there, there may be somebody here who has a sufficient psychiatric background to have insights into the current U.S. president. Um, right, but I, I, I am not that person, nor have I met that person. Um, you know, uh, nor do I know anyone who foresaw what we're seeing in Hong Kong. 
Um, you, know, you know, I wrote a couple of papers before Trump was elected about the economic dislocations in urban environments versus rural environments. We wrote a paper called The Two-Speed Economy, which was basically a document, we documented that urban citizens were doing well and rural ones were doing bad. We looked and documented similar things for the UK, for Europe, and other places. That dichotomy sits at the heart of the current political stress. On the other hand, that's nice, and it's analytic, it didn't produce any forecast that you could use for anything, right? Um, you know, I don't know anyone who got the Brexit forecast right despite the polling. Um, I don't know anyone who understood that Trump was gonna elect, get elected. Um, and most of the people who were worried about Trump getting elected thought he was gonna drive the market down 20, not up whatever it's been. Um, you know, I don't think anybody would have guessed that the primary economic action out of the Trump administration would have been a reduction in corporate tax rates. Could have guessed a lot of things, did. That wasn't one of them. Um, I probably would have put the infrastructure bill higher on the list. You know, the basic problem with politics is you're having to forecast the actions of a small number of individuals who are not being guided by the broader optimality of society. That's a lousy sharp ratio at a very deep level. And so I think from that standpoint, you learn as an investor to protect yourself from that uncertainty. You don't go into it. Um, you know, yes, there's apocryphal stories of people doing so, you know, um, people walking out of Mar-a-Lago and going long the equity market and things of that sort. Um, I can't imagine either of those actions, but that's okay. Um, now, on the other hand, there has been one reliable political trade in this environment, which is the unwind trade. That in environments like this, the market has pretty consistently sold itself on occasions some really weird stories. Right, you know, um, you know, the U.S. markets have sold themselves twice that China was going into recession. Okay, um, you have to be pretty far away from China to be able to buy that story. Uh, but the fact of the matter is, they managed to convince themselves that not only was it true, it was going to drive the global economy down. Right now, buying the front part of that trade probably not a good trade. The back part of that trade that eventually we're gonna figure out it wasn't true, that was a good trade, right? And so I think that probably the most consistent money that's been available in macro trading has been the unwind of politically generated beliefs. Worries about a large economic impact when that was, uh, when, when it looked pretty clear that that probably wasn't going to happen. Yes, you know, every time we convinced ourselves that Europe was on the, on the edge of dissolution, that was a good trade. Every time we've convinced ourselves that China was on the verge of collapse, that was a good trade, right? Um, right. The, the, you know, the, the U.S. Has, has had some smaller ones that are equivalent. Right. And I think that basic logic that politicians probably won't actually cause the world to collapse has been a pretty good trading rule. The problem is you've got to wait for everyone to be stupid before you can do it. Um, but, you know, that's kind of worked. 
Okay, uh, on that note, uh, thank you very much uh, to, to Steve. Uh, and that concludes uh, day one of the, of the conference. That concludes this episode of Exchanges at Goldman Sachs. Thank you for listening. And if you enjoyed the show, we hope you subscribe on Apple Podcasts and leave a rating or a comment. And tune in for our markets update every Friday morning where leaders around the firm share the five numbers they're watching in global markets. All price references and market forecasts correspond to the date of this recording. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute research or recommendation from any Goldman Sachs entity to the listener. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast, and any liability, therefore including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Goldman Sachs, and Goldman Sachs is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. In addition, the receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by Goldman Sachs to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any Goldman Sachs entity.